Alrighty, g'day, good morning. Welcome to 20th of January, the future for some of you. We are here in the future in Australia, 7.30 on Friday morning, which means I've been awake for about five hours. I just, I got so much in my mind and I wake up early and I can't sleep and then I give it till about four o'clock and then I'm like, all right, that's it. <laughs> Pulling the pin on this, get up, let's start doing stuff. So I've had pretty much half a very productive day already doing my doing my thing, some of which we'll talk about today. Thanks for those that are joining. Pimdus, uh, just in time. Very good. Christians in, in Norway. I'm going very well with my Duolingo, Christian, on my, uh, on my Norsk. So maybe by the next time I'm back in Norway, I'll actually be able to understand, if not speak something. Pimdus are still in the past uh, because that is yesterday, which is where most of you are. Today, actually, so I was going to say today is good. Today is unseasonably overcast and rainy here in Australia. Uh, well, here in the Gold Coast, Australia is a big place. I'm sure it's fine in some parts. But yesterday I got up and it was just like perfect. Everything was like perfect Gold Coast summer weather. Now, by that, I mean no clouds, consequently no rain. Everything was still. It was beautiful. This morning, rain. Anyway, let's get into it. Sponsors. Let's start with the uh, sponsor this week, which is CrowdSec again. Big thanks to CrowdSec. Gain crowdsource protection against malicious IPs and benefit from the most accurate CTI in the world. Get started for free. I'm going to talk about IPs a little bit today as well, actually. Uh, I don't think I mentioned last week CrowdSec. I did see in person in Copenhagen last week month. Yes, I had to think about that because it feels, well, it's a long way away, but it feels like a long time ago. CrowdSec is out there outnumbering cyber criminals altogether by gaining crowdsource protection against malicious IPs, uh, and as previously mentioned, most accurate CTI in the world. And a lot of this makes sense, crowdsourcing information, using information uh, from multiple sources in order to make informed decisions. That's a really good segue into something else we're going to talk about later today. Pwned or bot, which is getting a lot of a lot of activity, not just on the Twitters, but on the, do we say the Mastodons? I guess it is Mastodons, isn't it? Because there's multiple of them. Anyway, big thanks to CrowdSec. They have been a long-term sponsor, and they did give me a very nice hoodie recently, which is almost the weather for at the moment, judging by what's out there. So big thanks to them. Uh, David says, same in Sydney. Uh, Tim from Belgium is there. So David, I assume Sydney is just just wet. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, well... It's not Melbourne, but I kind of expect it to be a little bit, a little bit less stable in here. Pimdus says, uh, "Heavy night snowing outside my windows as we speak." Where are you, uh, Pimdus? Somewhere a long way away from here. I know that much. Now, speaking of long ways, not so long way. We're in Canberra on the weekend and Monday. That was exciting. For those of you not from this part of the world, Canberra is a little bit like. Uh, if you're in America, you understand Washington DC. If, if you're not, you've seen it on the TV. It's like where the politicians are. So we had a we had a couple of things to do in, in Canberra. Spent uh, a, a good whack of time on Monday doing some cyber things for some folks down there as well, which was that bit was great. Uh, the rest of Canberra, that was okay. We rode scooters around a lot. They've got e-scooters everywhere. It's a very wide open space. I had not understood until I went to Canberra in November for some other cyber things. I had not understood why Canberra was our capital city. Um, I think most people outside of Australia understand Sydney and maybe they've heard of one or two other places and they think that's about it. Sydney is our most populous city, uh, followed by Melbourne very, very closely thereafter. Why don't we have a capital in either of those? When I looked it up, apparently the rationale was because they were like the two predominant places people lived in the country, it wouldn't be fair to pick one over the other. So let's find somewhere kind of in between Canberra's a lot closer to Sydney, which is inland. Uh, it's got kind of nothing there. It's a three-hour drive <laughs> from Sydney. Uh, it has politicians, fireworks, and porn. Uh, that's, that, that is my understanding of what makes it unique. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sit there. Anyway, it was a good visit. We went to Ben Spoke Brewery. Uh, that was nice, so I enjoyed that. Went to the War Memorial. That was nice. Uh, and just had a, just a very easy trip. It's nice going away just for a, for a night because you can just take hand luggage and it's like you get off the plane and as you're walking off the plane, it's booked the Uber and it's a small airport straight into the Uber, straight in the hotel like 10 minutes away. It's, it's a very, very low friction travel. 
Uh, and that is the last bit of travel we have on the cards for a while as well, which is interesting. I'll talk about the next ones a bit later on. There'll, there'll be some interesting places that are, that are already booked that I'm going to talk about a bit, bit more later on. Christian says, missed you at NDC today. Not the same without you and Scott doing your off-the-record talks. Yeah. Well, we can't talk about that, can we? <laughs> it's off the record. You had Scott, and I hear he did a good keynote, and I hear he did a good Hack Yourself First workshop. Now, all of this has come from him personally. So, yeah, make of that what you will, but he does tend to get good reviews. So that's nice. Uh, Pimdus is in the Netherlands. I, I am I am planning a Netherlands trip this year. I do want to come back to the Netherlands. Uh, Charlotte has never been. I spent two years of my life there, so I'm a little bit connected to it. So we're, we're going to try and get to uh, get to the Netherlands, probably to a little bit of time in Amsterdam and probably a lot more time in Leiden somewhere somewhere this year. We'll talk more about that later on. I know other things. Twitter and <laughs> their API. Oh, God. I'm trying so hard to be positive about Twitter. I really am. And I think I'm trying hard to be positive in amongst the sort of the Elon dramas because it's been a really valuable platform uh, for me personally, both to learn from and to share things from. And I don't know that I would have the life that I do today were it not for having a platform with a large following where I, I get to talk about my things uh, and and actually carve out this weird life and weird living that I have today. Like that has been a large part of that has been uh, due to having Twitter available. So I'm optimistic about Twitter or I have an affinity to Twitter. Elon, I've gone hot and cold on. <laughs> I think, well, I'd, I'd say I'd gone cold and, and lukewarm and maybe a bit cold on. Uh, I've... <clears throat> Always felt a bit hesitant to jump on the bandwagon because of the amount of fanfare over Tesla. It just seemed a little bit incommensurate to what it actually was, both based on my view. The takeover of, of Twitter, in in many ways, I, I, I kind of liked it. I've spoken about it before. Jeez, I've had people, usually I'm Mastodon, people get upset that I'm even talking about Twitter, but it's relevant. Uh I thought some of it was uh, some of it was reasonable. I liked some of the things he did. I said before, I like having the view counts. You know, one of the reasons I like having the view counts is I can see how popular other people's tweets are, and consequently, <coughs> people can see how popular my tweets are. And particularly when you carve out a living with a public profile and sponsors and messages that people want to see getting traction, it's like that's actually quite valuable. Don't have a problem with that. I don't think it takes anything away from anybody. But what does take something away from people is unceremoniously killing APIs. So I'm just going back to the thread that I had uh, this week. Now, I have been a user of Tweetbot. <coughs> Tweetbot for many, many years. And there's really only one good reason why. Okay, several good reasons why. <coughs> And they all come down to being able to go through my mentions without missing any and synchronizing them across both my iThings, my iPad and my iPhone. So my normal way of using Twitter, and this might explain why my experiences uh, in a post-Elon world have been different to other people's, I don't spend a lot of time reading the tweets of the people I follow. It's more like if I've got some downtime somewhere, I'll have a flick through but I do spend a lot of time going through my mentions because I find that that's where people either uh, interact with me on things that I've, I've created or I'm doing or I'm interested in. I find that that's where people bring a lot of interesting stuff to my attention, where there'll be like a data breach and they go, hey, Troy, have you, you, know, you seen this stuff? So mentions is really important for me. And the native Twitter app is a clunky bastard as far as going through large numbers of mentions. Tweetbot was really good because I could say go to bed and get up the next morning and my scroll position is the same on either of my eye things. And then I scroll down a little bit or up a little bit, whichever way it is. I see the newer stuff and it, it's all there in chronological order and I don't miss anything. And that is the one thing that I use Tweetbot for. I found it clunky for DMs. I found it clunky for going through my likes and my just other things that I would then flick back to the native app for. Now, I saw 
when was this? Jan 14, six days ago now. So six days ago, I just couldn't access TweetBot and a little bit of Googling around on Twitter. <laughs> and you get other people saying the same thing. It's like, hey, I can't access my, my TweetBot or my other Twitter-related clients. And everyone's just trying to figure out, like, what's going on? Uh, yeah, has the API been killed? Well, no, apparently some things were still working. Uh, is there any communication from Twitter? No, there's no communication. And it wasn't until yesterday <coughs> that I saw anything at all from Twitter. And, and of course, you've got the likes of TweetBot, who I'm enormously sympathetic to because this, I don't, I don't know if it's like one person at home in their bedroom or a big organisation or who it is, but regardless, they've built something that people have become dependent on and they've obviously poured a lot of TLC into it and then suddenly it stops working and they're sort of tweeting around. Let's see if they shared anything new, actually. Tweeting around going, hey, we don't know what's going on. We can't get uh, anything from uh, Elon or Twitter. They haven't shared anything for a week now. Tweetbot and other clients are experiencing problems logging into Twitter. We've reached out to Twitter for more details, but haven't heard back. We're hoping there's a temporary glitch. We'll let you know more as soon as we know more. The only thing at all we've seen from Twitter, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if someone else has seen anything, is Twitter. How long ago was this now? This was uh, in the AM. This was just over two days ago. It says, Twitter is enforcing its longstanding API rules. That may result in some apps not working. It's like, what? And I did actually see Tweetbot reply to them going, could you? And they're very polite about it too. I've got to give them credit for that because I'd be losing my shit, I think, if I was in their position. But <clears throat> they've sort of said, could you please clarify the rules that we may not have been following? But you get nothing. And it, it, it does just feel super, super obnoxious because they have killed many people's hard work. It's just one fell swoop, gone. So, you know, we see Tweetbot or their, their parent organization who was that again working on a mastodon client called ivory can you say ivory is that okay it does sound a bit i was gonna say sounds a bit on the nose that sounds that's a terrible joke don't say that uh so they're working on a mastodon client here uh but geez i mean there's a single digit percentage of the people on twitter on mastodon i think would probably be reasonable estimate Let's see what their tweets and replies are here. Did they get anywhere on this? No, they really haven't engaged much at all either. It's it's a shame. I just don't know that it's necessary. Now, I've heard lots of people say, well, this is apparently the way Elon runs all these companies. There's no PR department or anything like that at Tesla, but apparently. Uh, mind you, that's a massively successful company, so I don't know if that's a a good business decision on his behalf or a bad one, but I know we judge harshly when we just can't get a reply at all from uh, a massive entity, whether it be Tesla or, or in this case, Twitter. Uh, it's sucky. It's sucky. That said, purely selfishly, if they fix the Twitter client so that I could sync my scroll position across my devices and it was still there in the same spot the next day, I would selfishly be happy because I would now finally have the native client I could do everything in. So, Elon, I know you listened to all the feedback. <laughs> Fix the native client. <laughs> Just make that better. And uh, and I, I guess Tweetbot can go and build Tootbot for Mastodon or something similar to that. All right. What comments here? Ivan says, uh, politicians are okay, folks. Okay, but where is the porn coming from? Um let me just get an incognito window and I'll check my facts. <clears throat> Canberra porn. Ah, oh, jeez. I can't Google this. So. Canberra. Let's just say legalities of porn. Uh, now, I suspect this is a very legacy thing. Here's an article from uh, 11 years ago. Porn capital title creaks into oblivion. My understanding of it, people tell me, was that before the internet is what it is in terms of being able to get access to adult-related entertainment, you were able to sell it in Canberra in ways that you couldn't sell it in other places, the same as fireworks. Um, now, let me... This is not what I should be reading in the middle of this video. Um, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, what's the third way to... 
No, okay. That's uh, that's not what I was after at all. All right, let's close that window. I think it's a very legacy thing, but that was always sort of the, the, the joke. It's politicians with fireworks and porn. Uh, go and Google it yourself. Maybe after this video, incognito, <laughs> the VPN. Mm. Greg says, pretty cool video with you on the Microsoft channel. Uh, which one was that, Greg? Was that the one where I was in the house and there was a drone and then we're on a boat? Um, I actually saw that again. That was that video is old. That's like a five-year-old video. And I saw it again only very recently. And I thought, that is a cool video. Like a lot of life has changed in the last five years. Don't get me wrong, but that's still a cool video. Uh, Stuart says, Twitter on iOS the notifications no longer display the rich card on Force 3D Touch for me. I didn't know you could do that. Perhaps another API broke. And well, mind you, if I try to do it now, it's probably not going to work, is it, if they've disabled that? Uh, the Force Touch. Because, of course, Force Touch, you can actually hold the thing. Oh, it works for me. So, uh, Stuart, is this what you're talking about? <laughs> like if I, if I tap and hold, let's find a recent mention somewhere here. Uh, here you go. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you for teaching me that. That's something else I've learned. Now, it's one of those very implicit things. Ah, oh, this person's angry with me. Anyway, we'll talk about that later on. Uh, Thomas is here. This has made it for a live video. Thanks, Thomas. <laughs> Chris says, congrats on the McLaren. <laughs> used to be a Lambo fan. McLaren look better in real life than they do in pictures. I'm going to talk about this another time. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just talk about it another time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Stuart, I see what you're saying here on the notification. So I think that that's, that's what I was doing. Thomas says, uh, suggested to Elon to make the clients really good and maybe pay for special features rather than take money for verifications. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things I got to thinking about with, like, let's, just calm down for a second if we can about Twitter and take a step back about killing clients and things like this. And of course, a lot of the discussion is uh, Elon has killed the clients because the clients like Tweetbot weren't showing ads. Now, if you sort of look at it objectively and go, well, you know, they've, they've built a platform. Uh, the, the reason that we get the platform for free, and I don't like this term that if you're not paying for it, you're the product. I've written about this before. I think it's a, it's, it's just a nonsensical argument. But you know, we get access to the platform for free. Obviously, they monetize the platform by selling ads. So I can understand the perspective of uh, clients, which then completely circumvent the ads and chop them out. Uh, I can understand Twitter not being happy with that. Now, that said, I think there's a way of communicating this and there's a way of doing it and announcing it and giving people time to do whatever they need to do in terms of getting ready for a platform to, to, to change behavior, which is effectively what it's done. And that's not the right way. But I can understand where they might have come from. Also, taking a step back, and I asked on Twitter the other day, I said, look, what about what other social media platforms are there that you use third-party apps for? Now, maybe it's my own skewed view, but I use Facebook a bit. I've never even heard of another Facebook app, not unless we're talking about like a Hootsuite or something like that. I think it can integrate with Facebook where you're using like uh, dedicated products in order to manage social media presences across different platforms. But is there another Facebook app or another TikTok app or another Snapchat app? I mean, if there is, it's, it's a rare, obscure thing. And inevitably part of that is, is that they need to push their ads and, and somehow monetize a platform that is very, very expensive to run. So I can kind of understand that. I think it's, again, it's just the communication around it. Now, I would feel much more comfortable, and this sort of partly speaks to Thomas's point here, if they made the client app much better, if they filled in some of these gaps that we've just been talking about and didn't make me want to go and use another product. Uh, I'd much rather just make their product better so that I organically didn't want to use Tweetbot. Maybe that'll happen over time. We'll see. David says, good to see the last past detection via have I been pwned. I'm not sure what you're talking about, David. Maybe you can clarify in the comments there and I'll come back to that. Uh, let's talk about 1Password. We're on password managers. Now, full disclosure, I'm on 1Password's board of advisors. Uh, I am financially incentive, incentive, incentivized. They didn't hire me for my language skills. Uh, I'm financially incentivized to see them do well. 
Now, having said that, I was also a user of the product for many, many, many years before I made any money out of it or had any other interest. And I still think it's a great company and a great product. Now, LastPass has had some issues lately, if you've been watching the news, which looks like it's boiled down to, and I'm going to summarize this very, very briefly, boiled down to backups of the key chains, which is effectively the vaults of their customers, being obtained by a third party. That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but the whole idea around the way these vaults should be designed is that if that event should happen, it shouldn't be impactful. It should be an attacker sitting here with this strongly locked vault that they're just not going to get into. Now, what it sounds like, and don't quote me on this, just what I read, what it sounds like is that if you can brute force that vault by guessing the master password, you're going to get in. And it also sounds like there's a bunch of metadata which is visible without decrypting the vault, such as the nature of the websites people have been using, the URLs of the sites in there. Now, that is very concerning. Many people have jumped off LastPass. Many people that I have seen have jumped over to one password or other password managers as well. Now, let me just talk briefly about other password managers and then I'll go down the rest of the rabbit hole about one password. There are other password managers. There is not just like LastPass, which has had all their breaches and one password, which I have such an affinity for. There are other products. I often get asked about how another product compares based on certain aspects of the service. I very deliberately don't comment couple of reasons. Number one, I don't know. <laughs> like there is a password manager I use, which is one password. What is now, I think 12 years ago, I went through an assessment of different password managers and that's the one I settled on. But at the time I had a better view of how different ones managed. Uh, so I don't comment on it because frankly, I don't have an informed enough to um, uh, view of it. The other reason I don't comment on it is because I don't, if I see some, and, and there, there are aspects of some of them that I don't like. And I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want it to look like I've got this affinity with one password and I'm just going to trash the other things because it's not one password. I just don't think that that's a healthy thing. Uh, I think people should go and make up their own minds on this. I do make some more general comments. So for example, I'll often have people say, well, you should be using a password manager where you control the synchronization of your keychain. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think there are very, very few edge cases where that actually makes sense. I like a managed service like 1Password has. Other password managers do that too. I also don't agree with the assertion that you should be using an open source one because that means it's more secure. Like, no, that's that. this whole sort of open source, good, closed source, bad is, is just such a ridiculous argument for, for many, many, many reasons. Now, of course, you can probably figure out which password managers fall into which categories. Uh, that's not necessarily to decry an open source password manager, but rather to say that just because the source is visible and you could read it or someone else reads it doesn't mean it's better than a password manager that's got an extensive amount of auditing and bug bounties and lots of eyes on it and, and all the rest of it. They're different. That's all. So I avoid talking about that bit. What I don't avoid talking about is how 1Password protects your data. I have not been incentivized or commissioned to say that. Uh, it is literally something that just popped up in my feed and I thought it was worthwhile sharing because a valid question that does come up is what would happen if the same thing that happened to LastPass happened to 1Password? Would all of your password things be pwned? Now, 1Password's got this article here. They published it on uh, Jan 10, so that's 10 days ago at the time of recording. It says, how 1Password is designed to keep your data safe even in the event of a breach. Now, I would say the timing is a little bit more than just coincidental. I didn't have any input on this, but it has come out at a time where lots of people are asking questions about what would happen if your password got taken, or rather your vault got taken. That said, all of this information has been out there for years and years and years and years. And a lot of this boils down to the fact that your vault is not protected by your master password alone there is another key which is generated when the vault is created. In order to access a vault, you must have that key and you must have your master password. And then there's a discussion here about, well, what do you do with that key? Well, first of all, you look after it very, very carefully. Uh, 1Password has what they call an emergency kit, which is a piece of paper that's generated in a PDF. Well, it's a PDF. You can turn it into a piece of paper by sending it to your printer 
and it has the key and it has a space where if you wish you can also write in your master password and now this piece of paper has everything you need to get into the account unless you've also enabled two-factor authentication. Now you can take that piece of paper and you can put it in a physical safe somewhere. So you are quite literally air-gapped off. You could also just record the secret key digitally somewhere and keep that secure. Maybe you're going to do both to have different options. So that's important. One password here also talks, let me find their exact phrasing here. Uh, I think they talked about metadata. One password encrypts crucial metadata to protect your privacy. In addition to the contents of your vaults, we also encrypt vault names and stored website URLs. Without them, someone who obtains your encrypted vault data would have no way to guess what's inside. They wouldn't know if they were cracking a vault with credit card or cookie recipes. So I think that whole premise of encrypting the metadata is obviously good. <laughs> so it, it, I guess what it boils down to is that by no means do you want someone to get your vault. But if they do get your vault, there shouldn't be anything usable in there and you shouldn't even be able to brute force it. Uh, and and that's, that, to me, is a sensible security decision. Um, let's have a look here. Uh, two important things here. The first key is your account password, which, of course, you must password. The second key, unique to one password, is called a secret key. It's 128-bit machine-generated code that's mathematically infeasible to crack. Stay skeptical, ready to get started, give one password a try. <laughs> so, I like their design. I'm happy with it. All right, what are the comments on here? Um, ba -ba. David says, good to see LastPass detection via Have I Been Pwned. And then he messaged something and then he, yeah, no, I said that before, and then he retracted it. Okay, he's changed his mind. Maybe he'll change it again and <laughs> put the explanation back. I thought I saw something pop up that said Watchtower, but I was talking at the time. Hmm. Next one. This has uh, consumed a good whack of my day yesterday, and I, I think I'm going to write this up into a blog post because it's turning out to be something quite interesting. And all I've put here in the description for this, this weekly vid is down the Cloudflare firewall hole chasing Stripe data. Now, I'm going to write the whole chronology up in this blog post. I started it this morning at like 3 a.m. or whenever it was I was up. Uh, but... I had someone using the Have I Been Pwned API key contact me night before last and say, I have upgraded my key from 10 requests a minute to 50 requests a minute. And of course, to do this, you, you go to the Have I Been Pwned API key dashboard. That then takes you over to Stripe, and then you just choose a new plan, and it, it updates you and prorates any credit from the old plan and then charges you the rest of the new plan. And it's all very magical. When you do that, in Stripe, Stripe will then make a, a webhook callback to Have I Been Pwned to say, hey, John Smith has just upgraded their key. It's no longer 10 requests a minute, it's now 50 requests a minute. So Stripe talks to Have I Been Pwned. Now, this guy had said, look, he'd upgraded his key, but it wasn't working yet. When he goes into his Have I Been Pwned dashboard, it still says 10 requests a minute and not 50 requests a minute. Uh, and also when he actually tries to make more than 10 requests a minute, he gets 429 too many responses. So something wasn't working. And I was like, oh man, I hope I don't have broken code or something. And I start going down the rabbit hole. Now, as I go down the rabbit hole, what I discovered is that the webhook callback from Stripe to Have I Been Pwned hasn't gone through. In fact, I can tell you exactly what it says because I've got my Stripe dashboard over here. And Stripe is so cool. It is so cool. It was getting an HTTP 403. Uh, 403? 403 is unauthorized, isn't it? HTTP 403, uh, which is forbidden, rather. Forbidden. So forbidden coming back. Now, what's kind of cool about the Stripe webhooks, and this is what I'm going to put in the, in the blog post, is that you can see not only the entire request payload, so it's a, it's a post request with a JSON body, but you can also see the response that comes back. And I'm seeing in this 403 a Cloudflare challenge page. 
So Cloudflare is, imagine you're in a browser. You've all seen this before. You're in a browser, you go to a website and something from Cloudflare or CloudFront or any of the other cloud things that sits there in between the client and the server pops up and says, we need to establish that you're not a robot. Uh, we're going to run some JavaScript in your browser or uh, uh, click on all the squares with the traffic lights, whatever it might be. It's a human challenge. So Cloudflare was popping up with that. And I was like, wow, that's, um, that's new. <laughs> that didn't used to happen. And then I'm looking at all the failed webhook callbacks. And there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them, but it's a single digit percentage of everything. So it's not completely broken. It's a bit broken, but it's broken enough for enough people to have to worry me. And for some reason, Cloudflare is now getting in the middle and rejecting the request. So I start going through firewall rules and then I end up opening a ticket with them as well. And what appears to have happened, and we're not entirely sure why yet, is they've updated a set of, actually, one thing I did before this. Uh, no, actually, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to put that in the blog post because I don't want to talk about that until I disable it later on because I did, not in any risky way, but I did turn off some of the security things. Um, so anyway, uh, Cloudflare said, look, they've updated a bunch of the OWASP rules that correspond with the time this started going wrong. So they've updated OWASP rules. Uh, some Obviously, that has now broken something. It's triggering, if I look at what they said over here in, in my ticket, which one was it triggering? They said it is triggering OWASP rule 949110, inbound anomaly score exceeded. Now, the inbound anomaly score, as best I can figure it, is based on the contents of the request. So remember, Cloudflare sits there in the middle, intercepting and inspecting traffic. Now, yes, it means it decrypts, and yes, it means it can read your things, but that's the entire point of having a WAF. Like, it sits there in the middle and it looks at the traffic. Now, there's something about this Stripe payload for some of these requests, which is now triggering the OWASP rule and blocking the callback. Now, one of the things I learned from Cloudflare yesterday, and I didn't know this before, but there is the ability to log the contents of the request uh, when a firewall rule is triggered. So Cloudflare keeps very transient logs of all the requests that go through. Uh, when they trigger firewall rules, it keeps a bunch of data on those, but it is usually uh, the URL, the user agent, the, the inbound IP address, so on and so forth. You can configure payload logging. Now, payload logging is kind of interesting because that's like the payload, the contents of the request. In this case, the request body, which is a whole bunch of JSON. Now, of course, that can have sensitive stuff in it as well, right? So when you configure payload logging, you need to generate a public-private key pair. They have the public key so that they can encrypt the payload when they, when they uh, intercept it. You can then go and retrieve that payload from their dashboard with your private key. Now, that's about as far as I've got. I've managed to go and grab one of the payloads, which is which is clearly one of the ones that's triggered the OWASP rule. I now need to figure out why it triggered the OWASP rule. And then one of multiple things needs to happen. Probably the most obvious one is I need to get in touch with Stripe and go, hey, you know, you guys have got requests coming through which are triggering this rule. I doubt it's specific to me. So I'm wondering how many other people at the moment have got things dying because callbacks can't come through from Stripe because their website's behind Cloudflare. It's not Cloudflare's fault. It's possibly not even OWASP's fault either. It's possibly not even Stripe's fault. It's just like planets aligning. If I hadn't picked this up quickly and have I been pwned, I picked this up within about 36 hours, what would have started to happen is API keys that were renewing, even though the credit card might have been charged, if the callback didn't get sent to have I been pwned, the API key may have been deleted. Now, I've got buffer in there for precisely this sort of thing, so that if callbacks and things don't get through, uh, there is some period of time, I won't say how much, some period of time where you don't just have your key nuked, uh, because I don't want to inadvertently nuke people's access. Anyway, it is a little bit of a rabbit hole. I'm going to write it up because I find it fascinating, and it's, it, it's, just, it's an itch I want to scratch. David, on the last part. Sorry, I got notification one password watchtower. I assumed it was via your API. Uh, no, it wasn't. So one password watchtower is a part of the one password app. I'm going to open mine up. In fact, I was going to share something about this the other day because I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, 
Let's have a look. So Watchtower will tell you a whole bunch of things like um, how many compromised websites you have accounts on, how many reused passwords you've got, weak passwords, unsecured websites, inactive two-factor authentication, uh, and some items here expiring, which are probably credit cards and passports and things. And then you get like a score. Now, Watchtower integrates with pwned passwords to check your passwords. It also integrates with have I been pwned in order to show you websites that your email address has been breached on. So getting back to David's point, LastPass has not been loaded into 1Password because I don't have the data. And I, wouldn't, I don't want vaults either. Uh, I would need to have customer email addresses. But I believe 1Password does enter that information from other sources as well. It's not just a fire hose of data from have I been pwned, which is a good way to do it, right? Like it's, I, I am not the canonical source of all things known for breaches. There are other sources out there as well. Uh, okay, cool. Ant says, um, is that additional 128-bit key one password adds into the process with the user's master password effectively just adding another 16-character string to increase the complexity? In very simple terms... <laughs> in very simple terms. Um, and Ant says, or I increase the brute force feasibility then. So have a read of, of the tweet, and I'll put it in the notes when I publish this, this weekly update to my blog as well. And that goes through and explains it in more detail. I'll link to a white paper as well. They've got a white paper that goes in a lot more detail. The mathematical feasibility of being able to brute force that key is, is effectively zero possibly quantum computing aside, which we don't have to worry about too much yet. Uh, go and have a read through it. But the, the, the whole concept of having an independent key, which is separate to your master password, such that you can't just brute force a master password, is, is really the crux of the matter here. Robert says, I deal with this every day, part of my work. OWASP rules are very easy to just check the uh, core rule set slash rules. Well, uh, I might even start tweeting some of this, Robert, as I, as I start writing this up today, because I, I do have to actually figure out what triggered it. It's not that I, look, I have to, that there are other ways of mitigating. I, I could, for example, just turn that rule off on the Stripe webhook callback path. But I'd actually much rather figure out why it triggered, because I think this is impacting other people, and they may not even know it until stuff breaks, and then it could be a real pain in the ass to try and troubleshoot and track down. Okay. Next thing, pwned or bot. Now, I've wanted to write this for a long time. <clears throat> it has been in the back of my mind for a long time because someone told me about how they were using Have I Been Pwned in this way a long time ago. And my availability hasn't been great for the last forever. Uh, so it got put on the back burner. But I finally finished it off yesterday and pushed it out. And... I'll just read you sort of my highlighted comment in here, which I think gives you the crux of it. We're also comprehensively pwned that if an email address isn't pwned, there's a good chance it doesn't belong to a real human. Now, this got a lot of traction. I woke up this morning and managed to sort of figure out where I was in my tweet mentions because Tweetbot doesn't work anymore and the native client sucks. Um, and a lot of the comments were there and they were really good. A lot of people engaging in it. Uh, interestingly, on Mastodon, people are a lot more negative. I thought Mastodon was meant to be the place where everyone's happy. Lift your game, people. I'll come back to the negative uh, comments, though. Now, to, to, to sort of scroll back to the the way I've framed this story, that there is a problem with some online services referred to as sniping. Now, this whole idea of sniping is there are products and services that come online at a certain point in time with very limited availability and demand well and truly exceeds it. So it's a little bit sort of fundamentals of, of, of economics. Uh, if there is something where a lot more people want it than what is available, then the price goes up. So where is seen sniping before? I used an example in here from a white paper of a, a Miley Cyrus concert like 20 years ago where these tickets would come online at like $66.00. And then they'd all disappear really, really quickly. And then they'd be relisted on resellers for like $258. So massive markup. Someone's making money out of it. How do they do it? Well, they build automated bots to grab these tickets as soon as they come online, massively mark the price up, and then sell them at an inflated value. I've got an example in here of a sniping tool and a YouTube channel 
that appears to be dedicated to teaching people how to snipe Nike shoes. Now, this is more consistent with the example someone had given me some time ago. I won't say what the company was, but they released a physical product at a certain point in time, massively high demand, and they were dealing with snipers, and they used the pwned or bought approach, I'm going to talk about in a moment. So what they were doing here with with Nike and, and the sniper is configuring this software to do things like, and, and this is off-the-shelf software, you can get sniping as a service. <laughs> They're configuring this product to create multiple accounts. The example he gives in this YouTube video that I've embedded is uh, creating 100 accounts on this service and then using commercial proxy services to have 100 different proxy exit nodes so that you've got 100 different IP addresses. So now you have a piece of automated software making 100 near simultaneous requests to create accounts from 100 different IP addresses. I don't know if they're randomizing UA strings and doing things like this as well, but effectively trying to game the system by just flooding it with new accounts. Every one of those accounts has to have an email address. And it's easy to go through and create new email addresses, disposable email addresses. So the whole idea of the pwned or bot situation is because we are so comprehensively pwned, and I mean, we've got more than 12 billion records in Have I Been Pwned now, about half of those are unique email addresses, so let's call it 6 billion email addresses. Because we're so comprehensively pwned, this company that told me how they're using it said, when we want to validate whether an account being set up on our service is a legitimate email address owned by a real person or not, we run it through Have I Been Pwned. If we don't get a result back, not pwned, then we have no evidence as to how long the account has been around for. However, if we get a result back and say LinkedIn, this email address was in LinkedIn, we know that the account was around 11 years ago because LinkedIn was in 2012, the data breach. Now, does that mean that if an email address is not pwned, it's not legitimate? No, it doesn't mean that at all uh, because you go and get a new email address. It's not in a data breach. Uh, if you've been lucky, you're not in a data breach. If you create unique email addresses per service, you're not in a data breach. If you use master email using 1Password and Fastmail, you're not in a data breach. If you use Apple's hide my email, you're not, in a, you're not going to be in a data breach. Like all of these things generate unique email addresses. Now, I'm going to come back to sort of all of the sub-addressing and your own domain and all the rest of it in a moment. But the, the, the point here is that absence of evidence is not proof that the account is not legitimate. Conversely, the presence of evidence, someone is in a data breach, gives you a very high degree of confidence that this is an email address that is real and has been around for a long time. Now, what I like about this is that you can use it as a signal. And going full circle and bringing Stripe back into the discussion, I embedded a little risk assessment from a Stripe payment here in the blog post. And what I love about I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so enamored with Stripe. <laughs> I just think it's such a cool service. What I love about this risk assessment is that it says, look, there was a payment. Uh, we have a rating scale here of zero to 100 to assess how risky the payment was, how likely it is to be fraudulent. And if it's like zero to five, it's green, you're good to go. If it's five to 60, you're kind of yellow. If it's 60 to 65, you're in the orange. If it's 65 to 100, you're in the highest risk rating. Now, how do you establish risk? It is a matrix of different observable attributes. And they're very important, it's, it's a matrix. There are lots of things that go into this. So for example, the one I've embedded here. Now this is a 77. So this is highest risk, this payment got blocked. Fraud history. Are there previous disputes from this IP address? No, there's not, okay, cool. So we don't have anything negative about the IP address, neutral. Previous early warnings from this IP address? Yes. So it has generated early warnings before. A little bit suspicious. Does that mean you block the payment? Probably not, but a little bit suspicious. And then it goes down, it says, look, here's the customer's email address. Is the customer, oh, I'll use their terminology exactly, are customer name and email similar? No. Many people have their name in their email address. Stripe is using as a risk indicator the similarity of the person's name and their email address. If they're similar, I imagine they don't have to be exactly the same. Maybe it's just the first name, maybe it's first name dot last name or something like that. If they're similar, 
okay, well, this email address does seem to be something that is logically associated to the person. If they're not similar, could mean multiple things. Uh, it could mean you don't want to be personally identifiable via your email address. It could mean that you're using some funny nickname that you always had as a child. It could be that you have a number. A lot of students just have a number. Doesn't mean that it's a fraudulent transaction, but it's one more flag. And look, it goes on and on and on. Some of the things I really like are things like um, how far is the address of the credit card from the physical address of the IP? Now, a lot of the fraudulent ones I've seen come up, it's like the physical address of the credit card is in the US and the IP is in India. So, well, it could be legitimate, but only in a very small percentage of cases, therefore it's another indicator. And what we keep seeing here is manipulate, bad word manipulating, it sounds negative, uh, affecting the risk rating based on many, many different factors. And in fact, I've got a little piece here, which I end up just copying and pasting to so many responses because people seem to have missed it. I said, think of breach history not as a binary proposition indicating the legitimacy of an email address, rather as one of assessing risk and considering pwned or bot as one of many factors. One of many factors. Now, the negative responses that I've been dealing with today, I'll probably see more on Mastodon now. Is it interesting? Seriously, that's meant to be the happy place. A lot of people are saying, this isn't fair because I haven't been pwned before. So, okay, well, then really you should just be in a neutral position. Like if your email address has not been a data breach, well, then it's a little bit like, have we seen malicious activity from this IP address? No. It doesn't mean it's okay, but it doesn't mean there's no evidence of bad. Uh, if your email address hasn't been in a data breach, maybe it's fine. We just don't know how long it's been around for. If you have been in a data breach, we go, okay, look, at least we know that you are probably a real human who's been around here for quite some time. And I think that's important. It's important to understand that difference. What have we got massed on here? Um, a bunch of people were raising sub-addressing. It's a good one here. Um, they're saying, look, what about sub-addressing? So if you're, you know, john at gmail.com, you could be john plus uh, LinkedIn at gmail.com, john plus Adobe at gmail.com. That would give you unique email addresses. What I think a lot of people have missed here, whether they use that approach or whether they have their own domain with a catch-all and they just put whatever email address is on, is that you are the tiniest, 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 tiniest speck in the broader spectrum of how people use email addresses on services. And I know that empirically because I keep pulling the data on it. And every time I've pulled the data on the prevalence of, say, plus addressing or sub-addressing, I get like 0.03%. That's actually the exact number in the number one requested feature for Have I Been Pwned on the user voice. Every time I run the figures, you are one in 0.03%. Now, does that mean you shouldn't be allowed to sign up to an account? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that your email address is never going to show up as having been previously pwned. So that indicator really doesn't pose any value to, say, a Stripe or someone like that. For the other what does that make it, 99.97% of people, their email address is the same one they use everywhere. And that is a valuable attribute. You know, someone here said, won't work for people like me who use different email addresses for each service. But you're special. <laughs> like it's, it's, you're in a totally different position. It's a totally different can of worms. Someone was worried about the privacy side of things. Um, actually, someone else here is another typical comment. Said, not a good idea at all, lol. Not sure I was lol. Both of my emails never returned pwned on have I been pwned. And I've had one of them for many years already. Well, first of all, you've been lucky. <laughs> if you've had it for many years, or you don't get out much. Uh, secondly, uh, then again, it's like, well, it's, it, it, it's just neutral. It just means that if you go and sign up for a service, which is using the pwned or bot approach, then they're not going to be able to conclude anything from your email address alone as it relates to data breaches. Let's see the comments. Um, Stephen's just reading that blog post. Very good. Greg, significant number of my B2B SaaS customers sign up with plus startup name suffix before at. So checking out have been pain would be useless. Now, Greg, I'm interested. How do you define significant? What percentage is significant? I think it would be interesting to actually go and pull the numbers. 
Uh, I will, the next time I get a nice new fresh data breach with all of the email addresses, I will run the numbers on sub-addressing. I will run the numbers on known master email service providers, whether it's the Apple hide my email one or the fast mail sort of approach. But I will be massively surprised, massively surprised if it is any greater than a single digit percentage. In fact, I'll be very surprised if it's any greater than 1%. Uh, and of course, this depends on the nature of the service as well. If you're running something that is very tech-centric and it's people like you and I signing up, well, then they might take that approach. Uh, if it is a LinkedIn or a Dropbox or something else used by the, the more general masses, you, you're just almost never going to see that approach. In fact, this is the reason that user voice, or one of the reasons that user voice is so long outstanding, because as important as it is to the people that have voted for it, you are a rounding error off zero. <laughs> I know that sounds very confrontational, but mathematically, this is this is right. 0.03%. That's so small. Greg says around 5%. How's 5% significant, Greg? Since when did 5% become significant? Now, maybe what you mean is it's enough to matter. Uh, that's, that's, I understand what you're saying there. Um, you said uh, around 5%, I can check. It's server monitoring software, though, so it's mostly super technical people, which is kind of, I, I know that um, I say something and you hear it about 20 seconds later. <laughs> so you might have sent that message before you heard me say the thing. But it, it would be interesting to see a hard number on that if, if, if you want to share it. Uh, tweet it to me. Um, it would be interesting to hear. Hopefully I'll find it amongst my mentions somewhere. And, you know, again, you make the point that it is super technical people. But again, I'm not sure that uh, 5% is a significant number now. Stevens just said 5% inflation would be significant, which is pretty much around where it is at the moment anyway. Oh, look, a 5% pay rise would be increased, uh, would be significant. If I grew 5% overnight, it would be significant. But 5% in terms of I have a corpus of customers and there is a slice and it is 5%, that, that's one in 20. I know you can do that, Mass. <laughs> but you know, that, that feels like a small number. So look, anyway, I a, a lot of the, the crux of why I wanted to write this is I really want to find better useful things to do with breach data because for the most part, breaches are terrible. I've been in a lot of breaches. I do not have fun being in breaches. Organizations getting breached do not have fun. I don't like criminals making money out of stealing other people's data or I don't really like the word stealing. That's another blog post somewhere. Uh, but abusing people. So when there is an opportunity... To, to use what almost becomes open source intelligence data to do something useful that might actually have a positive impact and actually be detrimental to the criminals. And I'm assuming sniping, it's a terms of service violation at the very least. Uh, and it is certainly disadvantaging other legitimate customers as well. So anyhow, being able to do good stuff like that to the detriment of the bad guys, uh, I feel very good about. So... I've seen a lot of very positive comments on this. I hope I see more use of that sort of pattern, uh, and we'll we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'd, I'd be I'd be very comfortable <laughs> seeing that use. Mom, as I said so many times, have I been pwned doing good things with the data after bad things happen? Okay, folks, I'm going to end it there. Go away. See if I can get to the bottom of that Cloudflare Stripe thing. Uh, write this up. Get some useful data and find some friends at Stripe to to chuck that over to, and uh, and hopefully fix some things for other people as well. Hope you uh, all enjoy your, what is it, Thursday night, Friday, weekend, and I'll see you next week. I'm going to do this at the other end of the day next week, so probably about 10 hours-ish later. See you, folks.